You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 235, Christina Dent and Compassion for Others. My friends, this one will challenge you, so listen all the way to the end. This is the show where we have uh, honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. Uh, I'm so glad that you are here. This is uh, always exciting. This this show, um, I can't believe we're we're in the 230s of episodes. That is great. If the show is meaningful to you, you listen every week, and you haven't had a chance to go out to Patreon or just halfway there, podcast.com, hit that Patreon button to support us. We'd appreciate it. You can get uh, cool halfway there t-shirts things like that and uh and episodes early if you want to just join us in that journey it is expensive to keep a podcast running most people don't know that but uh if you want to help i would appreciate it okay well today we have a really great conversation i'm excited uh, to have it because it's a little bit unique i haven't heard very many people having this conversation and so I'm interested to invite you into it. Um, Our guest, she's the president of End It For Good, a conservative nonprofit advocating for health-centered approach to drugs rather than a criminal justice approach. We'll talk all about that as well as her story. Our guest is Christina Dent. Christina, welcome to Halfway There. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to make the connection. You're doing some really interesting work. And so we'll talk about all that as well as your story. But give us just like, take us a little further than my brief introduction into kind of what God's doing and where he has you right now. Yeah, so I am um, leading End It For Good. I came to this through fostering, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, Um, being a foster parent. But um, yeah, I have three boys, live in Mississippi, born and raised here, lived here my whole life, and I'm really enjoying um, this season that God has me in. I spent a number of years at home with my kids, homeschooling them, and um, felt like this was the next thing God, God had for me, and they're in a great school now, and I'm doing this, inviting more people into this conversation um, that I, I feel like he, he led me into the wrestling with, and I'm inviting other people to come and, and wrestle mm. on this journey too. Yeah, which is really, really fascinating. So that's, uh, you know, I, we'll, we'll talk about it, I guess, a little bit. But I've been an advocate, at least personally, in kind of my mind since college, probably, which is maybe 20 years ago. So maybe maybe a long time. Uh, but I'm interested in hearing kind of why that and, and all the things that you're that you're trying to do. So we'll get to all that. But let's go back into your story. Um, let's go to, uh, like, so you said Mississippi, are you from Mississippi or where are you, mm-hmm. where you grew up there? Born and raised. Excellent. That's cool. Um, what was it like growing up in Mississippi? Is that, that's kind of Bible belt, right? It is. It's strong Bible belt. Um, yeah, I grew up in a great Christian home and grew up going to church all the time. We were, at the church three or four days a week, probably doing different things. I babysat for the church when I got old enough. We were the janitors of the church my (laughs) whole growing up from the time I was six. Like um, my life was just surrounded by that. And it was a wonderful experience for me. It was a great, great group of friends I had from there. Um, Wonderful adults in my life that discipled me. Um, I had a really positive experience from that. I love that. So I was just typing growing up in a Christian home in Mississippi for the show notes. And I had to actually do the little song, you know, M I S S I. 
I don't know. You probably you probably used to that. Uh, it's yeah. just cool. So Christian home, I love that. Um, what? So was there a moment for you when you kind of gave your life to Christ, even if it was young? Like, what was that like for you? Yeah. So I went to a um, Christian summer camp when I was nine, and they did a skit. Um, it was a mimed skit, so there weren't even any words. It was just a mimed skit. This guy and this girl did this skit about you know, this, he gives his life to God. And then this girl comes along and he kind of gives it to her. And then, um, she breaks his heart and he gives his heart to God. And it was just this Mm. real simple little skit, but I think the visuals of it for me as a child, especially were just, they stuck in my mind. And I went home and I was laying in my bottom bunk in our bunk beds back at my house a few weeks later, thinking about that skit and thinking, you know, like I've never not loved God, but I don't know that I've really ever thought about it as my own personal relationship, not just sort of my family as part of this community of believers, but do I have a relationship with God? Um, and I remember laying there in my bed that night and and holding my hands together and raising them up, just like I'd kind of seen them do in the skit and thinking, I, I want I want that. I want for my life to be given to God personally. Um, and even though I I wouldn't say oh, I was against God before that, I felt like mm-hmm. that was a moment where he helped me to kind of pull back that curtain and say, this is about you and me, not about your parents and me or your church and me. This is about you and me. I love that. That's a sweet moment. I think uh, I think the Lord loves that moment too, right? Like there's there's times when, mm. you know, it's, it's easy to, I, I, sometimes people will say, or maybe diminish it a little bit. You know, I grew up in a Christian family and it was always kind of, you know, it was the thing, but I'm glad you didn't do that. Cause I think that that's so powerful and important um, to have that moment when it kind of, kind of you, you clear away and, and kind of think about God yourself. Um, and I really, I really do think he likes, he loves that because that's what he wants, right? He wants that relationship with us. Jesus says, Hey, come to me like a little child. So mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, okay, so from there, so I, you know, you're growing up in this Christian family. What did discipleship look like in your early years? Yeah, my parents are really good about. Um, we had family devotions every night. Um, they were far more consistent with that than we have been <laughs> in our own family. As things are just crazy, and you're laying in bed like, oh goodness, you yeah. know, we forgot. Um, but that was just a consistent part of our life. They got us Bibles when we were young. We all had. Um, our own Bible. We all read together every night. You know, even when we were young readers, we slogged through those Old Testament passages of, you know, we each got to, we divided up the verses between, I have three brothers, divided up the verses four ways. Everybody read a fourth of the passage. Um, They would ask us questions about it, which was always terrible because I could never remember what we had read. And, you know, (laughs) It was my brothers would jump all over me. I cannot believe you don't remember that. How can you not remember this? Um, But they were just really consistent with that. Uh, And we didn't, um, my parents weren't real like emotional people or we weren't real lovey-dovey kind of in our family. They just had a consistent, we are consistently making um, church a priority. We're consistently making reading scripture a priority. We're consistently making prayer a priority. And that was just um, part of our, our family life. And that was really important and impactful to me. Um, as, as I grew up and more difficult things happened, um, that was a great foundation for me. When I was 15, I was in a, um, 
a train wreck actually outside of Chicago. Oh, wow. And um, I was on a ski trip with a number of youth that were in a school that my dad worked at. And I had gone with that um, group, even though I was homeschooled. And um, the train derailed. It was a terrible accident. Um, 11 people were killed. Nobody in our group, but people in cars close to us were, um, including some other girls. And that was a profoundly shaping experience for me um, to see how quickly my life could have been taken, that other girls um, did die that same night. And uh, that really kind of set me on another trajectory of deeper walk with the Lord that, you know, I don't know how long I have, but I want it to count and I want, I want my life to matter. And if it's short or if it's long, I want to be faithful um, to God. And so I feel like that was just another um, step deeper into that journey later that year, um, just after my 16th birthday, my mom was diagnosed with cancer and, um, we knew immediately that it was, um, not a kind of cancer people recover from apart from, uh, a miracle. And she lived for three more years, but, um, passed away, uh, from cancer when I was 19. Um, just a couple years later, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. He passed away from cancer when I was 23. So just, uh, a series of difficult, um, hard suffering experiences. And yet through all of those, I felt the Lord carrying me and protecting my faith through those times and helping me to see that um, he was faithful, even though um, life could be so incredibly painful. And, and my faith didn't protect me from that. I didn't get to not experience the train wreck or not mm. lose my parents. Um, and there were hard times with that, you know, especially when my dad got sick. I, you know, I really thought, look, God, I can, I can understand they're suffering in the world. Some people lose a parent and I had to be, that was what you had for me. I lost my mom, but you can't take my dad too. That's just not fair. That's too much. Um, somebody else can lose one parent. I don't need to lose both. Um, and those were real struggles. Those were dark seasons, um, for me, but the Lord carried me through those and has, um, kept my faith, even though I have gone through times of um, yeah. definitely a lot of questions and wondering why. Well, so that's part of what we talk about here, because I think it's so important um, to discuss those things, right? I grew up, you know, we never really did. Like, even though I know, I'm sure people were suffering, nobody ever talked to me about it, right? Like nobody ever talked about how we kind of go through that. So I'm really interested in in the actual experience of it. So those are some really traumatic events. I'm so I just start with the trainer. Like, how did you, did you, what was that experience like? And did, were you praying during it or like what, like what happened? Yeah, it was, when it was, was that really by the way? Crazy. Um, that was in 1999. Okay. Um, and yeah, if you go Google Amtrak train accident, no, 1999, I was in Chicago videos about it. Yeah, I was there oh, interesting. In, okay. at that time. So I, I remember that, um, being on the news. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it was really a uh, surreal kind of experience, just, you know, out of the blue, our train hit a tractor trailer that had steel rods. Um, and it just caused the first numerous cars of the train to derail. And then some of them hit into each other. Um, and it was at night in March. So it was cold. There was still snow on the ground. Um, and even there, I can look at that and say, you know, we derailed right outside of a steel factory. Um, and so as soon as the wreck happened, 
the steel workers heard it from inside and they all came running out in their, you know, their boots and they had all of this equipment. And even before first responders could get there, the person who carried me from the car that had overturned that I was in, we were able to kind of climb up the seats and get out the top um, because it had tipped over. And so now we, we couldn't get out the bottom. The doors were not you know, accessible. Um, so we climbed up the seats and got out the, the emergency windows onto kind of the top of it now, um, climbed down the, the side to the ground, but now there's gasoline everywhere. There's, um, mangled metal everywhere. Um, and here came these guys out from this steel factory. And one of them is who picked me up and carried me across all of that and over to, um, the factory where we were able to stay until, um, you know, all of the first responders could get there. So it was just even just seeing in those kinds of things, like a a horrific accident and horrific loss of life um, and small ways that I could still see that, that God had done um, something, uh, something good in that had, had allowed us to, the, the wreck happened right there where we had more people to be able to help us. So in just different ways like that, I could, I kind of, I guess I have always seen in, where God is, we're simultaneously in this broken, horrifically broken world with so much suffering. And still, I feel like often he gave me lights, little points of light to see I'm, I am still good. I am still at work here. Um, when I lost my dad, I I still, I don't have those points of light for that experience. I don't. Mm -hmm. And that I think is what I hold on to the hope of heaven for. Um, God didn't give me a peek behind the curtain to say, this is how I'm using it, or these are the people that I'm impacting. Um, Everything about that feels only hard and sad. Um, And I hang on to the promises that all of that's going to be made right in heaven. And all of that um, suffering is going to be uh, worthwhile. And God is working, even though he didn't let me see um, all the time. He's given me sometimes I can see yeah. and sometimes not. And I got to trust him for that. Wow. So you're, you're saying that you, because you'd been through some hard things like a train crash, I mean, that's, that's a pretty big deal, but, and learn to kind of see where God was working. You could go through the time when you didn't feel like he was working. Yeah. Easier. And I can say he's shown me other times um, and I can't see now. And, you know, that's been 15 years since my dad's passed away. And I thought maybe over time, I'll get to see some good come from this. Um, and I haven't had that. That has not been my experience. The Lord has not given me um, any ways to see good out of that experience. And yet, um, yeah, I, th- I think he's asking me to trust him that um, even for the times I can't see that he is still that he's still good and I can still cling to that. Yeah, it is all about trust, right? Like that's the, that's the, that really is the definition of faith as far as I'm concerned. It's just trusting that God is still good, even when there's all these other things and you're like, I, I don't know. I don't know if maybe, mm-hmm. you know, why, why did he allow that? Um, mm-hmm. Really, really fascinating. Okay. So that's, that's a lot of suffering in a kind of a short period of time and like, you know, may, or maybe a decade or so. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really, I bet that's really shaped you. And kind of your, kind of your faith. So, um, interesting. Okay. Well, so usually I go to, you know, the, like the dark night of the soul and that kind of stuff, but you kind of had that early on, right? Like you, so mm-hmm. what did that teach you about you, about kind of who, who you were and what, what maybe God wanted you to do? 
I think it just gave me a sense of, you know, these experiences of loss and all of them included loss of life. And I think it, it just put in me this deep desire to be looking for the ways that God wanted to use my life because I could see, you know, I don't know how long it's going to be. People died when they were young, you know, younger than I was in that train crash. Um, my parents passed away, you know, when they were still fairly young, my mom was 46, my dad was 50. Mm. Um, and so just this, I have, I, I think it, it bore in me this desire to try to see as clearly as I can for the time that I have on earth to try to, um, to not just be able to look back, you know, 10 or 20, 30 years and say, oh, you know, I wish I could have seen back then and, and done something differently, but really trying to see like, Lord, what do you want me to see now in the time I'm in now in the life I have and the gifts and experiences that you've given to me? What do you want me to do? with my life, whether that's staying home with my kids and homeschooling them, which I did for a number of years, whether that's doing what I'm doing now and inviting people to reconsider how we approach drugs. Um, I think those experiences gave me a sense of, I don't know how long my life is, but I want it, I want it to count. And I want to do things that God's leading me to. Um, even if they're hard things, I want to try to be faithful in that and to trust him for the strength to do that. Um, and, and really lean into, even if it's more difficult, what could he have for me um, in the days that he has given to me? Yeah, that's such a powerful reminder, right? And so you had a really, I mean, kind of three really big reminders of, hey, we don't, tomorrow's not promised, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. and what are you going to do right now? I used to keep in my desk, this was, I sort of tortured myself. I used to work at a bank and I didn't like working at a bank. And uh, I had a quote from Steve Jobs that said, uh, if you if were to die tomorrow, would you want to do what you're going to do today? Right. Mm -hmm. And I would look at that and go, not really. No, <laughs> no, I wouldn't sit down in this cube. I'd go home right now. Right. And so that kind of but that motivated me to to figure out some things, you know, so yeah. I, I get that. But it does sort of shape us. And it sounds like you've you pursued the Lord and maybe a different and maybe you're calling and kind of what he's asking you to do in ways that you might not have otherwise. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, so what was, so let's say kind of in your, in that early, let's say your mid twenties, let's say after your dad died, how, how did that, um, kind of idea, where'd that take you? Where, where'd that take you first? Um, so I, I did a lot of lay ministry leadership at our church. I'd always been real involved in church growing up and I taught junior high girls Sunday school and I was in college and, um, and I would, I just continued to be involved. I'd led an after-school tutoring program at our church during those mid-20s years. Um, I ended up, um, I, I left that after my second son was born and started working with our foster care ministry um, after my husband and I had become foster parents. Uh, that ended up leading me to um, to help to start a family preservation um, chapter of a ministry in our church, as I just saw in foster care. Um, there's a lot of kids in foster care who really, there could have been help earlier on and it wouldn't have gotten to the point where they needed to be in foster care, or maybe they're in foster care just because there's no other option, such as if a parent gets arrested and they don't have a family support structure to take their kids, their kids go into foster care. Um, and that's not because that parent was necessarily, a, you know, abusing their children or anything. It's just, there's nowhere for them to go. Um, that's true of medical problems. Also, if a parent has some sort of medical crisis and 
Um, they don't have a family or friend support system, and many people don't, to be able to help with their kids. Um, their kids can end up in foster care, and really, that's not the appropriate place for them. And so, um, are really just kind of trying to learn and figure out, you know, how can we, how can we try to zoom out? Maybe this is the principle is I'm always trying to zoom out and see like, what's the bigger thing at play here? Instead of just saying how, how many foster parents can we get? We need to, how can we ask a bigger question of, are there kids in foster care that for whom there could have been another solution earlier on? And we didn't have to have them in foster care. So I think that's part of what I've done on this issue with drugs also is trying to zoom out and say, you know, can I get my head above the trees and see what's going on at a 30,000 foot level? And are there levers we could pull differently when we can see this whole big picture um, that could create some different outcomes than we have now? Yeah. So did you start fostering? You said, I think you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we became foster parents. Um, We had two young boys by birth. Um, My boys were four and six when we became foster parents. And we fostered for about three and a half years. And that was actually what got me interested in how we approach drugs, um, because I had never had any uh, interaction with drug use. I never used like I never drank in high school. I never had I never even saw marijuana use, much less anything else. Like we, that was not part of my experience growing up. It wasn't part of my experience in college. I'd got a degree in Bible from a Christian university yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, we weren't doing anything like that. Um, so yeah, it, 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 that was for me kind of a, um, yeah, the beginning of this journey to, to understand, um, some things I'd never been confronted with before. Yeah, well, that's that's pretty interesting. Um, so, how how did you tell? Take us deeper in that story. I want to know. So, you start fostering, and then what? Like, how does that how does that kind of lead you into like this starting an organization and doing all that? Yeah. So, so my thoughts on drugs prior to this point of meeting a woman named Joanne um, was that you know drugs are bad and drug use is bad. Outlawing drugs is the right thing to do. It to me it seemed like A plus B equals C. This is simple. Um, and so for me, this, this kind of whole journey has not been one of a radically changed lifestyle. Um, cause I never use drugs, still haven't used drugs. I'm not really interested in drug use, but a radically changed mind. Um, and so I never really considered what that kind of a plus B equals C approach to drugs looked like in the real world. I never thought about, you know, what does a war on drugs look like in the lives of children and families? Um, I, that I just thought about it as, you know, Hey, drugs are bad. So let's, let's make them illegal. Um, that seems like the easy way to solve this problem. Yeah. And so I met Joanne, who was um, the mother of a little boy who was taken into foster care because she had used drugs while she was pregnant. Um, And in Mississippi and in many other places, that's considered an automatic cause for removal into foster care if a mom is struggling with addiction during her pregnancy. And so uh, Joanne's little boy, Beckham, he uh, was released from the hospital straight into uh, social workers care and brought to our house and we became Beckham's foster parents. And I did not know anything about addiction. Um, I could not fathom how a mom who loved her child could possibly use drugs while she was pregnant. I had no category for that. Um, And so I brought Beckham to his first visit with Joanne at the local child welfare office. And I had my other boys with me, my, my um, two biological sons and another foster son that we had from another family. And um, 
I, I pulled into the parking lot. I popped Beckham's car seat out of my van, turned around as my other boys are getting unbuckled. And there is a woman sprinting across the parking lot towards me with tears streaming down her face. And this was Joanne's. It's the first time I've met her. So I'm awkwardly holding Beckham's car seat and she comes running over and just starts kissing him and talking to him. And he's this little five pound, nine ounce preemie. He's this little tiny sleeping baby. Um, and yet here is something I totally didn't expect. Here is a mother who seems to deeply love her son. And that wasn't what I was expecting. Um, and so I was really suspicious. I thought this, this must be a show. This doesn't match up to what I think. And maybe she's just trying to get me to, to put in a good word with the social worker for her. And so she just wants me to think that she really loves him, even though in my mind, I don't know how that could work because um, she was using drugs and who would do that. But she spent her one hour of visitation with him while I took my other boys to a park nearby. And I came back and she was sitting on the couch in this tiny little visitation room at the local child welfare office. And um, Beckham is just sleeping on her shoulder and she's just holding him and rubbing his back. And um, she wants to know everything about him. And, you know, he's just a little newborn, so he doesn't do a whole lot, but she wants to know anything that I can tell her about what he's like, what he's doing, what he likes or what he doesn't like. Um, so I took him back home in this deep state of confusion over what this experience had just been like. And um, she left for outpatient or for inpatient drug treatment in um, another city that was a couple hours away in Mississippi. And she would call me from treatment and she would say, can you put me on speakerphone? And so I would, and she would sing to Beckham over wow. the phone. And I just saw in her this mom who had a kind of raw, open love uh, and vulnerability in her love that I just felt like put me to shame. I don't know if I could have done that. I don't know if I could have shown um, other people that that kind of love when I was in such a broken place. I think I would have wanted to try to cover it up. I would have wanted to try to... Mm to appear strong and tough. And she didn't, she let me in and see what her heart really was. And the more I got to know her, the more I realized this is, this is who she is. This is not a show. This is a mom who loves her son just as much as I love my three sons. And what does that mean for me? Because she's a mom like me. I also know we're putting women like her and men too, um, in prison every day for the same thing that she's struggling with. And so this war in my heart started over, wait a second, something is wrong because I now see that her struggle with addiction was not a lack of love for her son. It wasn't even a lack of desire to be free from that addiction. There's something else really complex going on there. Um, but this is not a criminal issue. And wow, what a tragedy this would be to take away from Beckham, a mother who dearly loves him and desperately wants to parent him. Wow. Um, and that just really set me on this journey to try to figure out what is happening and, and is there a better solution? Yeah. So you, you met somebody, right? You, you listened to somebody mm -hmm. and you, and you saw their experience and that changed your life, right? Yeah. Okay. I, there's a, there's so many questions I want to ask, but I am really fascinated by the fact that you didn't expect the mom, his mom to love him, right. Or to like, mm -hmm. you, you did, why is that? And, and like, was that, cause I don't think, that, I don't think you're alone in that. 
And so I'm wondering like, why, where did that come from? So I think it came from two places. One of them is this cultural narrative, very strong narrative that we have that people who use drugs, people struggling with drug addiction are bad people doing bad things. Now, I would say now what I learned on this journey that we'll talk about um, is that it's much more about hurting people trying to feel better than it is about bad people doing bad things. Um, So one of those is I just believe that cultural narrative that people who use drugs are bad people. And so that, you know, I didn't really need much else than that to want to think she's a bad person. The other part of that is fostering is easier um, if the person on the other side is a terrible person. That's my, my experience. It, It is much harder to live in this tension of, being able to see yourself in the in the parent on the other side, uh, it's much easier to say they're bad and we're good, and so this child is better off with us. Um, it was much more painful for me to kind of open that door to say, "Wow, she really is like a mom like me." What does this mean for supporting her, for supporting Beckham, for for trying to support? their reunification, even in this difficult situation where addiction is part of this equation. Um, and, and I, I can see that in hindsight now that that part of this is self-preservation, that it's easier to understand the world. If it's simple, instead of complex, it's easier to foster if there's a black and white, clear cut, good and bad line. Um, and it was a lot harder when I couldn't hold those lines. Mm. Yeah, those lines get fuzzy when you actually know people, right? Mm-hmm. What um, do you think any part of your um, sort of, it, I'm just your theology for lack of a better word, right? Like influence that as well? Because I think we have, I'll tell you why I'm asking the question, but because I contend that the way I grew up anyway, also Christian home, that kind of thing, even very evangelical. Um, the way we talk about sin and the way we talk about other people reinforces this cultural idea, right? And I, I'm not saying I don't believe in sin. I, I do, of course, and I believe we all need Jesus, and that's that's the deal. But if it reinforces the idea that everybody's bad, and we keep we keep kind of going over that over and over again, and uh, that kind of makes it easier, right? So I don't know what what do you do you think that played a part? Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. I think I have a, a naturally judgmental heart (laughs) and, uh, it's always easier to be able to find other people that you're better than. Um, and so, you know, I can, I I remember these experiences with Joanne of trying to find things that made her a worse person than me. Um, Mm. you know, just what is, what can I find about her that's different from me? Um, that kind of otherizes her, that makes her somebody that I don't have to see as somebody, you know, like me, you know, Joanne has tattoos. Well, I don't have tattoos. See, I'm better. Now, mm-hmm. m- meanwhile, I wanted a tattoo. I just hadn't gotten one, but it was just something I could kind of latch on to of, see, we're different. See, we're not the same kind of person. See, I am, I am somehow better, even though there's, you know, no moral value to tattoos, but I, I'm trying to find things that I can create you know, this, this narrative that, that helps me, um, and makes my life a little bit easier, um, by otherizing her. And I think it, the ways and the reasons why we do that are so complex. Um, but I think there's just a lot of it that we have, that has just become part of our, um, our culture. And I think for a lot of us, so this is probably 
I have learned this more over the last couple of months, the more and more people that we've talked to, I've been doing this work for a couple of years now. Um, and it's, it's only become clear this kind of um, piece that is playing into this as I've talked to lots, hundreds and hundreds of people over time is that for a lot of us, we have behaved in ways that um, we behaved in because we believed this narrative often with people we love. And mm -hmm. so if, if something is wrong about the way that we're thinking about drug use or addiction or people who are struggling for some of us, that's an indictment of our own treatment of other people. Um, you know, maybe we have, um, maybe we have misunderstood or not seen clearly what our own loved ones were, were struggling with. And so, you know, for us to kind of begin to think of it a different way, it feels like, well, gosh, what does that mean that I've done something wrong in the past? Even if I didn't know it, even if I thought I was doing the right thing to kind of, you know, uh, help them, you know, give them a, give them, you know, speak, speak harshly to them because that's what they really needed or whatever. Um, and I think that's part of it. I think it's certainly that was part of, of my own journey of, you know, this, this isn't just changing my mind on something sort of out there. This is something I have also sort of lived out of. This is, you know, there's some, uh, some culpability that I feel for my own support of this. And I don't want to be responsible for something that I didn't intend to harm people. Um, and I, that's still something that I struggle with, you know, I, um, and yeah. I know, you know, we can get into kind of what ended up changing my mind, but, um, I think there's so much wrapped up in this that is part of our personal experiences. Some of us, it's part of our professional work, um, that is just so wrapped up in this narrative. That's really difficult to untangle. Um, changing our minds is hard on its own, it's especially hard when there's other pieces of our lives that are kind of wrapped up in that narrative that we've operated out of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. You you hit the nail on the head. I think with the otherization of other of people, right? So they're they're different. We're better, or I'm better because I believe this thing, or whatever it is. And I just think that's so detrimental, and also not Christ-like, right? Like Jesus never did that. If, and you, even if you watch. Read John four friends with, um, without judgment. Don't read judgment into Jesus interaction with, with the woman at the well and just listen to him, uh, talk back and forth, back and forth. Even, um, in John, some of the, some of the interactions that he has with people take, take this sort of judgment and the harshness out, watch him interact with people. You'll see something quite different. I think, um, that will, that will shape how you also interact with, with the other as well. Okay. So what, what did change your mind and kind of how, what, what, what was the breaking point and led you to starting, uh, starting an organization? Cause that's a big step too. Yeah, it is. So this experience with Joanne was kind of this war in my heart over what's happening. Uh, something feels wrong about this. And it was enough. Um, I knew that, that if we were wrong about anything related to how we were handling drugs, um, we were wrong on kind of this massive scale because this is a huge issue that touches all of us in some way or another. And so I felt like whatever I need to learn about this because um, this has a huge impact. And so I went on this journey to learn um, and this kind of war in my mind started over what's the research that's out there? What is, um, what can I learn from just trying to, to open my mind and, and try to, to think uh, critically and try to, to, to learn what other people are talking about, what, what other research is on a better way forward with drugs and, and what's actually causing all of the harm that we 
kind of experience. So what I learned on that journey is that drug harm actually falls into two categories. One is the harm that comes from the substances themselves. And one is the harm that comes from criminalizing those substances. So drug prohibition. Um, So think about it uh, for listeners as sort of two sides to a pill. You know, there's a red side and a white side. And if you kind of break that pill apart, one side, let's say the white side is the harm from the, the substances themselves. And this other side, the red side is the harm that's coming from prohibiting those substances. And that was a huge thing for me to learn. And the more that I learned and the more I kind of put those the harms that we experience into either the white side or the red side of that pill, the bigger and bigger that red side got. Um, and I realized that actually the vast majority of all of the harm that we experience related to drugs today is not coming from the substances themselves. It's coming from the forces that prohibition exerts on the drug. So I'll, I'll talk through those three kinds of areas because it's helpful to understand sort of why um, why we're rethinking, why we're inviting people to rethink this issue. Um, it's not because uh, we don't believe that drugs can be really harmful. They can, absolutely. Um, we want to help kind of open up this other area of consideration over whether or not that harm is made worse or better by prohibiting those substances. So what happens when you prohibit a substance is um, you have this market transfer that happens, you have a substance transfer that happens, and you have what happens to consumers when you criminalize them. So with a market, you transfer it from uh, regulated, legal, law-abiding businesses selling substances into this criminal underground market. And we have a cultural understanding of this because of alcohol prohibition. We've seen that happen before. The same thing is happening today with other drugs where they used to be sold in legal regulated ways, including drugs like heroin and cocaine. It's 100 years ago. None of us remember it now. Um, but we transferred those markets into this criminal underground market. Um, and that's where the vast majority of all crime is coming from today. It's fighting over this criminal underground market from drugs. Um, I had an interesting experience with this. I was doing an interview for a book that I'm working on, um, and I was interviewing a man named Ismail, and his mom grew up in Colombia, and she grew up during um, the time where the cartels uh, were, you know, producing and transferring cocaine through Colombia. Tons of violence related to that. Again, the cocaine wasn't causing that, but the underground market that that we had forced cocaine into was causing that. And um, we're, we're doing this Zoom interview because Ismail lives in California. And he says, actually, look at the necklace that I'm wearing. And he leans up to his computer camera and shows me this little charm on this necklace. He said, this was my mom's necklace from when um, she was growing up in Colombia. And it's a little charm that's the shape of the country of Colombia on the front. And he flipped it over on the back. And he said, this is my mom's blood type. Uh, the violence was so bad during her growing up years that they were encouraged to have their blood type somewhere on their body, either tattooed or on a necklace or charm of some sort, because so many civilians were getting killed or maimed in all of this drug-related violence that they it was just best if everyone had their blood type in case they got caught in the crossfire. And so she wore that charm as a girl wow. growing up in that kind of violence in Colombia. It's important to understand that violence is caused by prohibition. We don't see that violence in the alcohol market today. We don't see the the head of Coors, you know, toting guns over and taking out the head of Heineken or whatever it is. <laughs> Those are legal regulated markets. They don't, they, they yeah. settle their disputes in the courts. Um, they don't take it out on the street. So that harm from 
prohibition to the market is by forcing that market underground, we're not fighting crime, we're actually funding crime. So that market transfer happens, but something happens to the substance also. So substances go from being legal and regulated. You can, you know, control for contamination, what potency and purity and all of that that you get in a legal regulated substance. It transfers into this unregulated, um, contaminated free for all of this underground market. Same thing happened during alcohol prohibition. People are cooking up, you know, whatever they want to in the backwoods or their bathtub or basement. Um, so today, the the overdose epidemic that we're experiencing today, if you actually drill into those numbers, if you look at opioid overdoses, um, the, the narrative that we have is all of these people are dying of opioid overdoses from legal pills they're getting. And we have to crack down on that. But if you look into what's actually happening, 83% of the people who died of an opioid overdose in 2019 had heroin or fentanyl in their systems. So these are the vast majority of opioid overdoses today are caused by unregulated drugs on the street where people don't know what they're getting. Potency and purity can't be controlled for. You get a baggie of whatever it is you get and you don't know, is it going to get you high or is it going to kill you? There's oh, no way so for scary. you to know. Like that, it that's is. scary. I can't imagine taking that risk like all the time, but wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, we can think about that kind of as, you know, by prohibiting the regulation and quality control of drugs through a legal regulated market, we're not decreasing overdose deaths. We're actually significantly increasing them because people are getting pushed to these um, far more deadly drugs on the street. And so the more and more that we crack down on legal prescriptions of opioids, the more and more people are going to street versions and the more and more people are dying because of the lack of regulation around those. Um, so I, I kind of think about that as, you know, we don't have a choice really for just people to all of a sudden stop using drugs. Like the, the, that's just not happening in the world. We've tried to make that happen. It hasn't happened. So we do have a choice. Do we want people under the care of a doctor? Do we want them under the care of a drug dealer? And what's happening by forcing people away from the care of doctors, we are forcing them into the care of more and more people who are dealing on the street. Yeah. Boy, when you put the choice that way, that's uh, that's quite different, right? Right. <laughs> and we want a third way. I get this here. Yeah. We want the third way. We want, no, no, no. We don't want either one. We just want them to stop. Um, and if you've experienced addiction in your family and your listeners, many of them have, they know what that's like to feel that desire. Just make them stop. Why can't yeah. they just stop using? It can be so devastating to a family. Um, and yet the, the choice that we have isn't, we, we can't force that to be, but we can help people to either have a, um, you know, be under medical care. Um, or we can force them away from medical care. Yeah. Um, and that's causing a lot of people to die. So that, so this hap yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but it's the question that comes up in my mind. Okay. Are we just then enabling uh, addiction better or I, I guess, yeah, prevention. We're not, we're not, uh, we're not preventing it like you're saying, right. By making it illegal. So yeah. But so how, how do you respond to that? Yes, I think it's it's helpful to think about kind of that third category of harm. That's a good that's a good lead into that actually. So we have this market transfer that happens from legal to underground and crime ridden, the substance transfer that happens from legal and regulated to contaminated and underground. And then we have what happens to consumers that's really important to understand. And I think this is part of the answer to your question of um, why do people use drugs? Like why can't we just 
have them stop yeah. using substances and why and and part of understanding whether or not this is enabling is understanding the reasons behind why people um, use substances. So first to kind of get this big picture of what's happening with drug use. Um, I think for some of us who don't have personal experience using drugs, there is some sense where we believe like, well, if you, you know, drugs are out there, but I never see them. And so they really must not be that widely used because um, they're not sort of public and visible. But if you look at how many Americans are actually using illegal drugs, um, the United States government says one in 10 Americans are using illegal drugs wow. recently. So, you know, one in 10 people you're passing at the grocery store, one in 10 people you're getting gas next to at the gas station. Um, for a lot of us, a lot of those people are also in our churches. There are lots of people struggling with drug use addiction in our, in our pews of illegal drugs also. Um, if you look at incarceration rates, one in five prisoners worldwide is incarcerated on a drug offense. And we immediately go to, they must be, you know, cartel bosses. Um, no, 83% of people worldwide incarcerated on a drug offense is for possession. These are just people possessing drugs. They're not they're not people that were arrested for selling or some sort of, you know, cartel activity or gang activity. Um, so we have, it's important to understand, you know, drug use is really, and this is something I had not thought about before. Um, it's something that I've just learned through talking through to a lot of people who have used drugs or in recovery from addiction or struggling with addiction is that drug use at its core is about trying to feel better. Um, maybe it's trying to feel more confident at a party. It's trying to feel, um, to take away anxiety. It's trying to feel better. Um, if you're struggling with depression, it's trying to, um, to cope with the pain of life in a broken world, trying to cope with the pain of traumatic experiences. Now, not everybody that has traumatic experiences uses drugs. Um, but all of us can, uh, I think, uh, at least, acknowledge that we all have different things we go to that help us to try to cope. Some of us use right. food. Some of us are workaholics. Some of us use, you know, tobacco or gambling or, you know, whatever. So, some <laughs> of us phone, scroll right? through social media, yeah. <laughs> Facebook, social media. Um, so you have this kind of, you have drug use as this numbing mechanism. And when I, when I came to understand, this is really about numbing the ways that we feel um, now, addiction, is that really helping you? No, but it is still the core of that is still the same. It's still this, this attempt to make life better, even if it's just for a little while. Um, so you have this incarceration and criminalization of consumers brings about this kind of vicious cycle. So you start with drug use, then you introduce incarceration. Well, incarceration is is designed to be traumatic. It's designed to disconnect you from your family and community. It's designed to be this really painful, traumatic experience in the hopes that it alters your behavior. Um, so you have now this disconnection from your family and community. You have coming out of incarceration, employment difficulty. Um, so now you can't provide for your family anymore. Uh, you've been disconnected from your community and those allies that we often use to find employment. Uh, and you have this criminal record. And now you've had this cycle of trauma. So we're using trauma to try to fix a problem that is made worse fundamentally by trauma. Um, and it is no wonder then why we see this addiction just continuing to explode and why using this tool of the criminal justice system is not the right tool to be using for a complex health crisis like 
um, drug addiction and we continue to get poor outcomes because we're actually using the very thing that makes drug addiction worse is the thing we're using to try to make oh it better. Oh my goodness. That like when you said that, I went, oh yeah, that makes so much sense, right? That 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 helps me understand what's actually happening, right? And so, and it's fascinating, like yeah, to to use trauma. Should we be in favor of using trauma against others anytime? Right? Like is that that's that's a significant question I think all Christians need to wrestle with. Wow. Um Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. Those, those are all really great, great, um, you know, points. So when, when, uh, so you started end it for good, like when, when did you do that and kind of what, what's your goal? Yeah. So I started in the summer of, um, 2017, um, which was about a year and a half after this experience with Joanne. So I kind of met Joanne, went on this journey to, to learn. We're still fostering during this time. Life is crazy. I'm homeschooling my two boys but all along that time, I'm learning. And this is what I'm learning is kind of what I just walked you through all this different kind of harm of, wow, criminalizing drugs actually is causing the majority of the harm that I thought was being caused by the drugs themselves. And hmm, what am I going to what am I going to do about that? So I ended up um, over that course of time coming to the conclusion that um, instead of supporting criminalizing drugs, I felt like the same values that I still had, my values hadn't changed. I wanted to help people. I wanted people um, not to experience addiction. I wanted families to be strong. I wanted people to stay alive. Those same values led me to changing my mind and instead being in favor of a legal regulated market. Um, Not because I want people using drugs because I don't, Um, I don't want my own kids using, um, but because it is the best way to reduce harm in a broken world with broken people and potentially harmful substances. Um, So I came to kind of stepping back from that sort of attempt at perfection. You know, can we just rid the world from all harm? Um, Can we rid the world from all substances? And instead saying, you know what, there is no perfect solution, but there is a realistic solution that can help us reduce a lot of that harm, keep a lot more people alive, help a lot more families be able to stabilize instead of be torn apart through addiction or incarceration. Um, And that's kind of where I landed. And I wanted to invite other people onto that journey. Um, And I wanted to do it in a way that allowed them to sort of take that journey the same way I had, which was over a period of time, you know, nobody shamed and blamed me for thinking the way that I did. I had people I could go to and ask questions to. I had respectful dialogue. Um, I had this sort of non-confrontational ability to take this journey over this year and a half. And I wanted to provide that for other people. So I started hosting uh, book discussions on Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream. Um, it's a fantastic book. We've used it a lot in our work here in Mississippi. People have found it really helpful. Um, it's written all through the stories of real people, but it's very well researched and it kind of walks through um, the the big 30,000 foot view of what have we done with drugs over the last hundred years? What have been the impacts of that? What are options for reform in different ways that we could we could look at for um, options. And he kind of leaves you with the question of, you know, what do you want to do with all of that? It's not a, it's not a hard sell in, in one direction. Um, and so I started hosting book discussions. I, the first one I did was with 12 of my friends um, at a local restaurant. We just met and discussed the book and it went so well. And people said, how can we keep 
learning about this. Like this is also things we've never thought about before. And we kind of need time to simmer on this. We need ways to keep learning. And so I'd continue to just host those discussions. Those grew into bigger and bigger discussions um, that grew into more and more interest. Um, I wrote some op-eds for our local um, uh, newspaper in Mississippi. And just the more and more people were interested, the more I thought, you know, I'd, I want to be able to offer this in a, in a way that like, there's way more interest in this than I ever thought. Yeah. And so how can I do this more? So I ended up just starting um, End It For Good, which is a um, 501c3 nonprofit. And we have now um, hosted 20 of those discussions over 11 different cities in Mississippi. Um, we've had about 700 people that have come to those and they've just been great conversation points of inviting people into this dialogue to say, look, we're, you don't have to leave tonight with, you know, a changed mind. We're inviting you onto a journey. We're asking you to open that door, to consider uh, the cause and effect, to consider if there's anything maybe that we want to do differently. And maybe you don't get to the same place that I am on legal regulation of drugs. Maybe you just decide you don't want consumers to be criminalized anymore, but you know you still want to keep the market illegal. Well, then we've got a lot of work to do together until we get to any part of it that, that we're going to diverge on. Yeah. Um, and that's what I want to continue to invite, invite people to consider is how can we have better outcomes and, and are there ways that we can learn and grow, even if that is a hard journey. Um, for me, it was hard to change my mind. I mean, I I did not want to come to this conclusion. It would yeah. have been a lot easier if it had, if I had gone on this journey to learn and said, hey, I was right all along. Um, that would have been just an easier place to land. But I, once I began to, to really learn and dig in and learned this cause and effect, I thought, you know, I'm, I am a, a pro-life Christian. I, and mm. I'm seeing now tens of thousands of people dying unnecessarily from all of this violence in the market, all of these overdoses that are preventable um, from contamination, all of these families, millions of them torn apart through incarceration. Um, and I, I just came to the conclusion that my those values that I've always had as someone who is politically conservative, as somebody who's a Christian, were best lived out under um, this kind of changing my mind in favor of just a health-centered um, approach to drugs and drug use when it comes to how we handle them in the legal system. Yeah. People are biased toward consistency. So once you've had a position like that, it's really hard to change, right? It like is really hard. It, it's tough. And so that is a, I mean, that people use that all the time like, against you. You should, you should be aware of that. But, but, uh, but so, so you have to kind of, yeah, I respect the the willingness to go on that journey. Um, and I, you know, I agree with you. I live in Colorado, so we've got, we legalized, we were one of the first States to legalize marijuana and just down Broadway here, there's a number of, of shops where you can get it. Um, my, my heart, the hardest part for me is like, I, I, I agree with you. What we're doing is not working, but I hate smelling it every time we, there, any, any event, there's no event in Colorado that is absent of that terrible smell. And so like, oh, that's, but nobody's going to do anything about it. Right. So you just kind of, kind of got to live with it. Um, which is just sort of the smallest of impacts, but it, it is, it is annoying. But it's thing. a great, it's a great point you bring up, Eric, because uh, I think it, what you're saying is, you know, there's this sort of cost benefit mm -hmm. weighing. And that's what I think. I think we need to think of it that way, that there, there is no, there is no solution with drugs that gets us everything that we want. 
There's yeah. just none. Like, and I think our Christian worldview helps us to own that. We live in a broken world. We live in a world with broken people. We live in a world with pain and suffering and with people trying to find ways to feel better. Um, and so I think of it as we're weighing cost and benefit. Um, and there's some cost to legal regulation. You know, you're smelling marijuana, you yeah. know, places that you go. That's annoying. You wish it wasn't that way. Um, so we have to weigh that, weigh um, the costs of legalization with the costs of prohibition. Um, you know, okay, so that's the cost on the legalization side. There's some other costs too. Um, what's the cost on the prohibition side? Is it worth living with yeah. that? to be able to have, you know, thousands of fewer people arrested and families traumatized right. through incarceration. Is it, you know, is it worth it to right. decrease crime? Is it worth, so yeah. it's, you know, this isn't against you. I'm just, no, no, no. I love, I'm it's glad a you're helpful it. point to kind of um, think about that cost versus benefit. I think we tend to think about it as very black and white, either it's perfection or it's nothing. Um, and I think, especially as Christians, we, we have a worldview that helps us to to acknowledge that there's tension there and um, we're, we can't go for, you know, utopia. This is all right in the world we live in. What can we go for? Can we go for things that, you know, would, would reduce, um, you know, human suffering could keep more people alive, that sort of thing. Yeah. So in an ideal world, what, what would you want to see? Like if you could, if you could go and get it passed and create what you want, what you'd like to see, what do you think would be most beneficial? Yeah, this is a good question because I think it's really hard for us to imagine a world where that yeah, would, like right? we just can't even conjure that image. Like what on earth could this possibly look like? Um, so I would say, you know, there is, we have these different regulatory um, models for different substances already. We sell alcohol through licensed premises like bars. We sell it through, you know, licensed um uh, stores where you can go purchase it and take it home. We sell opioids through prescriptions. We sell things like Sudafed from pharmacies, but without a prescription, you know, it's still tracked, but you don't actually have a prescription to get it in some States. Um, so we have these different regulatory models. There's also models in other countries that they have used for things like heroin, um, which is admittedly a, a far more potentially harmful drug yeah. than something like marijuana is. Um, it doesn't always cause lots of harm. It's used in hospitals in other countries as, you know, the same way that we would use morphine here in, in the U.S., you know, after surgeries and things like that. Um, but in other countries, what they have done um, with heroin in particular is they have had it where um, if you're addicted to heroin, you can come to a clinic and you can use it on site. So they give you a, um, you know, a, a pure dose of it. It doesn't have contamination with all of these other, you know, brick dust or laundry detergent and, you know, fentanyl or, oh, you know, wow. all these other additives that's in what people are injecting in themselves out on the street. Um, and they can use it there. It's a healthcare facility. They're offered help if they want it, if they feel like, you know, this is something that they want to, to stop doing. But what it does is it allows people to stabilize their lives. So if you've been in chaotic heroin addiction, um, pretty much your, your world has revolved around just getting enough money to keep this addiction going. And when you remove that into bringing people into a clinic setting where they don't, they're not doing all of that chasing anymore, you got a lot of time on their hands. Um, and so the clinic helps them with, you know, it, do you want to try to find a job? Do you have housing? Um, how can we help you fill up the cup of your life with things that make it meaningful? Because you can't just take away a substance 
if you don't fill it up with other things. We're all longing for connection and community and meaning and purpose. And in the absence of those things, substances can help fill that void. Um, Not a good help, but it does help for a little while. but when you take that away, you need to fill that up with connections and community. Johan, Her- Johan Hari says, uh, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Um, oh, wow. And that's what, you know, that's what 12-step programs offer to people is that it's a community to belong to. Um, that's what churches mm, yeah. uh, can offer to people is a community to belong to. Um, and I think that's an, an area where we could see a lot of growth in providing that for people who are um, maybe the kinds of people that we we tend to think, you know, they don't really belong in in our churches. We kind of want them a little more cleaned up before they come. Yeah. Um, and yet, the the thing that they need most in relationship and community and um, purpose is um, the things that, as as Christians, we believe, you know, we have sort of the 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 best of that because um, we have Jesus and we have the community of believers. And so I think of it as, you know, every substance should be looked at individually. You know, the same regulatory Mm, model that works for marijuana isn't going to work for heroin. And we already have that with other substances. You know, some, you know, some drugs you get one way, some drugs you get another way, alcohol you can buy recreationally, marijuana you can buy recreationally, but only from a, you know, a dispensary. You can only go in if you're 21. Um, You know, we have these other we have these other models um, and we don't have that with these drugs, you know, on the street. So as I think about, you know, my kids, you know, I've got a 12 year old, a 10 year old and a six year old. And I work on, you know, inviting people to consider legalizing and regulating the drug market of drugs that I don't want my own kids <laughs> right. using, you know, <laughs> right. how do you thread that needle? Um, and I talk to them about that, uh, but well, I want, you know, I want them to see this isn't about celebrating drug use. This is about how can we, handle potentially harmful substances in a way that does the least amount of harm to people yeah. and allows us to, you know, for people who are struggling, give them the best opportunity for help. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it does give you opportunity. I mean, so when we do hear, smell something at a concert or wherever public place, or we're driving down Broadway here and we're, and we're talking, you know, their kids, the kids ask, Hey, what's that green plus for? Oh, well, all right. And then that gives you an opportunity to have that conversation with your kids about drugs and how harmful they are. And, and uh, all that kind of thing. So, yeah, you, I think we have to do that just like we do with any other, you know, human thing that we do to 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 try to try to get by. So, yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's really fascinating. I have lots of other questions. Like, I'd love to know. You mentioned other countries, but I don't want to keep you if you need to go. Um, I'm good. Other countries, um, you know, do they struggle with that? And so we we so some okay. I'm just gonna ask a bunch of questions, and you answer however you want. So that my my question is about other countries with heroin. Like, is that actually are they seeing results from that? We had a ballot. I don't know if it was a ballot measure or something. It was it was up here in Colorado to do sort of on site uh, heroin things. I don't know if that passed. Um, I don't think it did because I've heard anything about it, so it must not have. But um, or somebody or maybe the governor was talking about it. But it's been kind of a kind of a talk. I know of like Vancouver has some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, what's the results that people are seeing? And that, again, like, like I'm afraid of enabling others, mm-hmm. but I would love to see, like, I want to see churches. Like I, I know that it's, it's scary, right? I know that it's weird, but I want to see churches care for the least and the the marginalized in our society. And drug users are those, are those people who are kind of shoved out. Like you said, 
anyway, I don't know where if, what the question is there. But so what, what's the what are people seeing? What's what's where are the results that are happening? Yeah. So in um, Portugal, did um, they didn't do heroin assisted treatment, which is what we've been talking about, where you can go and get you know legal heroin. You can use it at a clinic under medical supervision. But Portugal did. They just addressed that kind of third category of harm for consumers, um, and they said, you know what we are going to stop putting consumers of substances in jail. Like we're not going to legalize the substances. We're just going to stop arresting people for possession of substances. And instead we're going to put most of the money that we were putting into enforcement of our drug laws into kind of prevention and treatment programs. They also gave tax breaks to businesses that would hire people coming out of incarceration or coming out of um, a drug addiction treatment program. Now, they did this because they had a terrible overdose crisis in Portugal in 2001, and um, 1% of their population was addicted to heroin, which is mind-blowing. That's way more than we have here, even in our kind of current crisis here in the U.S., And so they decriminalized possession of all drugs and people were scared, you know, well, you know, if you stop holding the hammer over people's heads, everyone's going to start using and addiction's going to go through the roof and this is going to be a disaster. And what they found is that drug use has not increased for some age groups. It's decreased. Their addiction Mm. rate has dropped by a third. So that makes no sense to us because we think, how is that possible? If you stop punishing people, don't more people become addicted? But what they found is that as they stopped punishing people and as they stopped traumatizing people, less people have become addicted, which makes sense when you think about why people use drugs and that trauma is one of the leading drivers of risk for drug use in the first place and of, you know, non-problematic use becoming an addiction is how much trauma you've experienced in your life. And so as they stopped all of the trauma production in people's lives, They've just found, uh, and and they've they've done all of these kind of public health initiatives to help people be able to access um, treatment in a way that is you know doable for them, outpatient treatment, those kinds of things that allow them still to be you know working and all of that. Um, they found their their um, drug injection drug user rate has dropped by fifty percent. Wow. So again, that that fear of everyone's going to be shooting up on every street corner if we stop punishing people. And yet they found 50% decrease in their injection drug use rate, 30% decrease in their addiction rate. A lot of their drug-related crime has also gone down because as you see addiction rates fall, you just have far less people that are in that chaotic active addiction that are committing all of these property crimes to get money for drugs. Um, so they just, they saw the good things happen and they haven't seen the harmful things happen. Their their drug use rates just haven't gone up. So um, to me, that says, you know, it's, it isn't the threat of punishment that dictates for most people, whether or not they use substances, there's something far deeper in them. You know, the, the pull to numb is a lot more, is a lot deeper than a law that says, you know, you should or shouldn't do this thing. And if we stop traumatizing them, um, there's far better opportunities for them to get help if they have a problem or for them never to develop that addiction in the first place. Yeah. Okay. So they broke the cycle of trauma Mm -hmm. and that helped reduce uh, overall drug use. That's amazing. Um, Okay. So what can churches do? So my, you know, my audience are mostly Christians. What's, you know, if they're wondering what can we do like right now, how can they, how can they kind of take that first step? 
Yeah. So one of the things that I would love to see is um, I was talking with a a local therapist here who is also in um, recovery. And he said, you know, it's so difficult to find um, a lot of conservative churches that will even allow, you know, an AA meeting in their their building. You know, it's just kind of this separate sort of thing. Um, And I'm part of a conservative Presbyterian denomination. So this is my my stomping grounds. (laughs) You know, my life is in the PCA (laughs) Um, and I'm still part of the PCA. Um, and so that was, that was just one thing that he said, you know, I just love to see churches being willing to open their doors just to, um, you know, groups like celebrate recovery or AA or, you know, different groups like that. It doesn't have to be, you know, abstinence based. It can be other things too, but there's lots of groups around the country Mm -hmm. that are meeting to provide sort of specific care for people struggling with addiction. Um, and to, for them to be able to see a church opening their doors to that is really powerful and something that churches can do without having to really do a whole lot other than offer their building as an opportunity for that. Um, Another thing I think churches can do is to begin talking more about substance use and addiction um, in non-stigmatizing ways. So it tends to be, you know, if if we hear about it at all, which tends to be kind of rare, we hear about it yeah. as sort of an example of a terrible thing, maybe in a sermon, you know, right now you may be struggling with, you know, this, that, and, you know, an addiction and, you know, Jesus can help you with that. Um, so we kind of, it, it tends to be kind of uh, cast in the, the sort of worst of the worst sort of thing. And that makes it even harder for people to, um, to say, I need help. And for a lot of people, the, you know, the road to their sobriety um, is going to include them facing a lot of trauma and a lot of healing from that. And um, we need to be really careful not to further stigmatize, further push them away and make them feel like um, you are, you're worse than us. You're less than us because you're struggling with this. So even just talking about it, I did a, um, a podcast interview and I got a email from a mom who is a homeschooling mom. Her teenage son who is homeschooled um, is using drugs, illegal drugs. And she's trying to grapple with this. And she said, I heard you on this podcast. And um, I don't even remember what I said. I said something about, um, you know, there's a lot of families, a lot of parents struggling who feel like they've failed as parents because their kids have used Right. Legal drugs. You know, we just, and I get that. I, I understand that that is the narrative we've had, that if you're a good parent, your kids won't. And that's just not true. This isn't about good and bad parenting. This is about hurting people, trying to find help for the, the, the parts of their life that feel really hard. And we can all identify with that because we all have those experiences. Um, and she said, it just brought me to tears because that's how we feel. We feel like we did something wrong. We failed. You know, what, what did, what did we do or what could we have done um, that would have resulted, you know, in our son not using illegal substances. Um, and I, so I think that just talking, just being willing to talk about, um, substance use as, as something that is, you know, a much more common event than we tend to think of it as, because it is a more common event than we think of it as. What I found is that way in the beginning, before I'd started in it for good, when I had just kind of changed my mind, uh, I, you know, put a little something out there on Facebook about this, you know, I'm shaking because I was so worried that everyone would think I had lost my mind and was, you know, going to leave the faith or something. Um, and what I found is that, very few people would interact with it publicly, you know, that my post would go by and nobody would do anything on it. You know, I'd think, well, I don't know, maybe 
you know, maybe everyone hates me. I don't know. And what I found is that over time, more and more people would come up to me in real life. They'd come up to me at church. They come up to me, you know, at a party somewhere at a birthday party. And they would say, thank you so much for what you're what you're doing. Thank you for the ways that you're talking about this. And then they would tell me about why. Thank you. Because when I was growing up, my mom struggled with addiction and we were, mm-hmm. you know, our family was kind of pushed aside because nobody understood it. And we, they just thought, you know, she's, she's crazy. And we got to yes. kind of distance ourselves from that. Or thank you because my son is struggling with a heroin addiction and we feel so alone. Um, these are the people who are sitting in our pews. These are our brothers and sisters who are silently struggling. Um, some of it out of just the the nature of wanting to keep their family's struggles close, but a lot of it out of the stigma that comes along with that and not knowing how are people going to respond to this? Like wow. if I, if I say this, are they going to think I'm a bad parent and my son is a bad kid? And, and what parent can, wh- who of us wants to risk that? We don't want to risk that. It's too painful on an already painful situation. So I think what we need to do is we need to to front acceptance and love for people before we know who it is that needs to hear that. Um, Because we don't know who it is that we know who is struggling. Um, But we can begin to just, in the ways that we can, share a little something here and there and let people know um, proactively that we're a safe place. If you're struggling it's okay to, to admit that. I'm not going to think less of you. Mm. Um, you know, I'll pray with you. I'll be there with you. I'll walk with you on that journey. Uh, but you're not going to find judgment and isolation if you bring that um, to me. So I think churches of all places can be a place that model this and that can provide that for um, for our fellow people that are sitting in our pews with us. Absolutely. Uh, you guys, the whole issue is messy and helping having compassion on those who are caught up in addiction is messy, but Jesus proves that uh, he goes where it's messy, right? He goes, he goes right in there. And uh, the question is, will you follow, will you follow him into the mess to help uh, be a force for good? Christina, I love that. I'm sure we could talk for a a long time. We've already gone over what our normally our normal episodes are, but uh, I'm so fascinated by the topic. I appreciate you staying a little bit. Is uh, there anything you want us to leave us with? Obviously, people can find you at uh, enditforgood.com. Anything else you want to leave us with? Yeah, I'll tell you the end of Joanne's story. Oh, yeah. I'm always interested to know what happened with Joanne. So she's been sober for five years now. Um, Beckham just celebrated his fifth birthday in November. And she works now full time um, with other people that are struggling with addiction. She does intake for a um, treatment facility, helping other people find the help that she was able to um to receive. So she has this kind of great end of the story. It doesn't always happen that way. There's lots of people who go to treatment numerous times and it's a long time before they can find sobriety. And some of them are still struggling with addiction. Um, her story could only happen that way because she's not sitting in prison um, somewhere. Wow. But about the same time that this was happening, there was another mom, very similar situation named Nikki, who also had relapsed while she was pregnant. Um, but instead of being able to go to treatment and continue parenting her child, um, she was arrested for her prenatal drug use. And um, Nikki is now in a Mississippi prison serving a 15-year prison sentence. So while Joanne has been home raising her son, um, Nikki's been in prison while her mom is raising her children. 
And I asked um, Nikki's mom, you know, if I could use their story as I talk about these things. And, um, and the first words out of her mouth were, thank you for not forgetting us. Wow. It's been incredibly hard for them. And so that's what I want to leave um, listeners with. And I'd love for them to come and connect with us. Like you said, enditforgood.com. You can find me across social media at Christina B. Dent. And you can find End It For Good across social media at End It For Good MS. But there's a lot of things on our website. There's kind of a get started button that will help sort of if they want to learn more, if they kind of want to start the journey to learn. Um, and I just ask people to keep that door open in your mind. There's what I hope this conversation has done is opened a whole bunch of doors in your mind. Um, and now we're going to end it. We're going to leave you with a lot of uncomfortable questions <laughs> that you have that aren't answered. What do you, what about the enabling? How do you build good boundaries when, when it's, um, you know, someone's in active addiction and you need to protect your family? All of these things are absolutely valid, relevant questions. This is just the tip of the iceberg, but come and journey with us because you and I really are the judges. We're the judges in Joanne's case. We're the judges in Nikki's case because it was the desires and sentiments and votes of people just like you and me that led to where we are today with drug prohibition. And it's people just like you and me that can lead us out of it. And if we wanna be part of that, that's gonna take putting a little time into learning about it, deciding whether or not we're gonna change our own minds and then inviting other people on that journey with us, not in an angry way, but just in a curious way, offering people an opportunity to come on this journey and learn and figure out how can we have fewer people harmed by drugs. Oh, amen. Christina, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Eric. I loved it.